If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. So we're looking at VR, but we're looking at it for a reason. I like to focus on engagement and retention. You can just either survey or just watch the kids in your class. Are they enjoying it? Are they paying attention to the content? Are they interacting with it? Suppose the next time you wanted to learn something, you could interact with virtual objects that could prepare you for real-world opportunities. That's one of the ways in which Winnipeg-based digital media company Bitspace Development is working towards its mission of helping to build the future. Bitspace Development's goals include building the best interactive educational experiences they possibly can while making virtual learning more accessible to everyone. And to do this, they're creating interactive learning solutions for the classroom and the workplace, which can involve VR, AR, and mobile games. Dan Blair is the founder and CEO of Bitspace Development. Dan, you introduce yourself on LinkedIn by saying, I build interesting things that solve problems. How did you first get inspired to do this? I kind of just got inspired to build interesting things by, I guess, like the growing up process of growing around technology and listening to stories about how things are built and kind of just being generally curious about the internal workings of technology, both hardware and eventually software and video games. So I started thinking about just solving problems and building interesting things from a very young age and long before I started doing it professionally. (laughs) What was one fun aha moment as you were growing up that you thought of something, created something and solved a problem that you really had a good time with? So long before I had learned how to code or or build software or anything along those lines, I, I got really interested in computer hardware. And when I was back in high school, which is starting to feel like a really long time ago for me, <laughs> is a moment where my electrical teacher, uh, who also was my computer hardware teacher, gave me a box of parts. And he said, if you can build a computer, you can keep it. And it wasn't like the latest and greatest computer, but it was a functional computer. And I, I was running Windows Windows XP. It would have just scraped by on Windows XP. But it was a moment where I was given a box of parts and I had to start doing the research to figure out how to build a computer for myself so that I could have my very own computer. And that definitely catapulted me to really being intrigued with like hardware and how things all work. And and people who, who follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter will notice that like my streams on social media, which are very much just like a mess of what's coming out of my head is an intertwined sort of story of hardware and software and just hacking stuff. And it all kind of comes back to that point where I was given a box of old parts and told to build my first computer. <laughs> and it literally was that. I didn't have a computer at home yet. I was building my own first computer. You got to build the computer and you got to take it home, I'm assuming. Yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> Fast forward to today. Right. Five years and change, if no, six years and change, if I'm counting correctly, of Bitspace (laughs) development and a bunch of awards. How'd you first come to create Bitspace development? So the creation story for Bitspace is kind of funny. I didn't actually set out to start a company. 
I was actually working at another startup just out of college. So I had just I had just graduated college. I was going out to become a software engineer. And there's young, bright-eyed Dan, six years in the past, really excited to just start building things. But what I had done while I was in college, because there's some pieces that lead up to this, which all kind of accumulate to a story where I felt like I was making up for lost time, propelled me to really get out there and network. So I started getting really connected in the startup community and the hacker spaces and stuff along those lines. And what that ultimately led to was me being introduced to my mentor. And so my first mentor, his name was Giduga. He uh, used to be the chair of the Computer and Applied Education Department at Red River College here in Winnipeg, where I'm located. He also happened to live a couple blocks from me. And so what happened was I was offered a, a project in the summer after graduating while I was working somewhere else to build my very first, it wasn't VR, but it was using 360 technology, my very first immersive project. And I would be doing it as the leader of a team. And so I took a leave of absence from the company I was working at. I fully intended on going back and sorry, guys, I never did. But uh, I took a leave of absence to get some experience leading a team. But what I didn't know, because I also have a business school dropout, because business isn't for me. I didn't know that I didn't need to like incorporate like a company to like accept a contract. I thought I had to have like an actual company to do contracts. So I went ahead and I, I registered a company and, and here in Canada, it's only 200 bucks to do that. You just pay the 200 bucks to fix it up later. So I registered a name and did a first draft on a logo and never changed it and never changed the name. <laughs> and what I found out was I didn't actually know how to stop doing it. <laughs> so I had this first contract and a space and we ended up doing an applied research project in the space, which ended up winning an award through Polytechnic Canada. And that was for creating an applied education space for bridging startups with students to create opportunities at high-tech jobs of the future, but also create opportunities for local startups where I'm from to get access to talent and space that they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford. And it ended up being an astounding success. Like the school still runs the space. We've had tons of companies come through, but I was the original entrepreneur in residence and my initial research project is what led to that. And that first project was for another one of my mentors named Michael, who was running the teaching learning technology center at the college. And since his retirement, I've actually hired him to come work for me. So he now heads up the education department here at Bitspace. But the whole idea of starting my company and getting to where I am today was all founded on just not knowing what I was doing when I was setting up a contract and then not knowing how to stop and figuring out very quickly that I needed to find more problems to solve, more projects and, and stuff along those lines. And I was very lucky that it ended up pushing me into the space that I wanted to be in, which was immersive technologies. We have branched out a little bit since then, but we still largely are focused around immersive storytelling, XR and XR deployments to this day. And I will say that back in 2015, it was not easy to find people that wanted to do VR projects. <laughs> that is the best accidental startup story I think I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Let's look at how you're doing this. You're bridging the gap right now. You must really have an interesting challenge with this pandemic between what employers need and what schools are teaching. What if I were a teacher right now and I don't know anything about XR and I want to know, well, how can this help me with my students? to teach them some skills they're going to need in the future? So 
whenever I'm talking with schools and teachers about how to use this technology, what it can be used for, I guess I fall back on a lot of the like cliche stuff that people in this industry are used to, right? It becomes that technology that allows us to put you in the eyes of a storyteller. A lot of our experiences are education-based. So obviously we're talking to teachers, but a lot of it is in trades, safety, and stuff along those lines. And so we fall into the problem-solving categories of reducing the risk of injuries and reducing the materials used when doing training and stuff along those lines. What we do try to put a heavy amount of focus on, though, is how do we use the technology to connect people? So we do all the standards like, you know, this is good because the technology lets us not cut our fingers off. Fair. Like, you know, that's not a surprise to anybody in the XR industry right now. Still surprises people outside of our industry, so it is valuable to talk about. But what I do talk about a lot lately is using the technology to give a sense of connectivity when they're remote learning or when they're learning from somewhere else. Like maybe they don't have to travel to Canada to study abroad. They can join a virtual classroom. But what it also does is it gives us a sense of agency and it lets us be on an even playing field. So it gives everyone a sense of equity in that space when we're learning together. We're all there as digital avatars. We all get to sit around the same digital table. It doesn't matter where you're from or who you are or what your background is, your culture, what your ethnic, you know, anything along those lines. Everyone gets an equal playing field because we get to be represented how we choose to be seen in that virtual space. And that is a really powerful piece for instructors. We've been doing a really cool project up here in Canada with Georgian College for the Indigenous Language Program, where we're using XR to teach the Indigenous languages in a home, in a workplace, and stuff along those lines. And what's really cool is it becomes that digital meeting space where they can gather and they can speak their language and they can learn the language together, but on an even playing field, whether they're at home or in school or, you know, out on the land or wherever, as long as they have access to that technology. I love that. What platform are you using? Yeah, so that particular one is using Engage to the surprise of nobody listening to this. It is a fantastic tool for connecting people like that. We have done projects similar to that where we have looked at Mozilla Hubs as well. In fact, we use at this space Mozilla Hubs. We have a branded instance of it that we run and we use it to meet every single day. So with our staff, we're still fully remote at BizSpace with the exception of our warehouse team for the hardware prototyping. Kind of hard to put a CNC mill in one of my staff's basements. But for the art and development and education teams and sales and marketing, they're all remote. And so what we do is we meet up in hubs every single day. We all have digital avatars and we're able to sit around a virtual space and still feel like we're in the office. We try to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Engage, Mozilla Hub. And if I'm not mistaken, you have been remote since the start of the pandemic. Is that correct? Yep. We were actually trying to beat the curve, had started planning to go remote. It just so happened to be that the day we went remote up here in Winnipeg was like the day before all the businesses were mandated to go remote. We had to do a full shutdown. So we were one day ahead of the curve. We thought we were going to be at least a couple of weeks. But yes, we went remote and we never opened up. We do have our space now that things are easing up a little bit here. I think at this point, 99% of my staff have been vaccinated. So we are at the point where we are making it optional to return to the office. However, we do have safe work procedures around you know one person per room and you know masks and social distancing and stuff along those lines. But We do use the the VR space to connect more humanly together. (laughs) What are you seeing in terms of new platforms? The Alt Space, the Mozilla Hub, 
and the engage.io, but what's coming out new that you're going to be keeping an eye on for platforms for XR connection? So we've been exploring all kinds of spaces. We've been mostly focused on how to enhance the way that we're using the existing platforms. However, we have been exploring other collaboration tools like big screen and stuff along those lines, mainly because we're looking for not just other ways to like do a classroom get together, but other ways to connect with the team for other activities. So can we get together as a group and play a game together? Can we get together as a group and watch a movie? I think that that's where we're going to see a lot more growth in the platform space. There has been a few others. I don't want to name too many names because there's been some shortcomings on, on what we found in regards to applications for ourselves and our clients. But there are some really exciting things coming down the pipe. But yeah, I don't want to name too many names of friends in the industry. Yeah, let's not get anybody in trouble or do a commercial yeah. <laughs> here. But what I will ask you, and this amounts to a shameless plug for what you're doing, you have an XR experience planner on your website. And a lot of our listeners are makers, artists, educators, etc. I'm going to ask you if you might take me through planning an XR experience for somebody who's never done one. Let's say we've got an art teacher and they're going to do a maker festival. How might they do sure. something like that in XR? So the XR planner form on our website or XR builder came out of a pattern that I noticed when I was planning these projects. And what I've started to do, and the reason it's on the website is you don't have to talk to me. You can go in and you can fill it out and it'll spit out a PDF and it's intended to become the template for what you're going to use moving forward. But it walks us through the steps that we find are really effective in how we ultimately plan and build something. So we start by talking about what is the high-level things we want. Right? So we're looking at VR, but we're looking at it for a reason. So if I'm an art teacher and I want to teach people about you know, how to connect with my audience or how to create you know, just a VR art installation that's going to allow me to like walk through the experience and connect, or maybe I'm a welding instructor and I want to create a welding experience that's going to show how the safe use operation of the tools and the PPE. Either way, we're going to be thinking about how are we going to apply that technology and what are the learning outcomes that are going to come from that? So we start by taking those at a high level. From there, we're going to identify what is the physical space that you're working in, right? So as an art teacher, maybe I'm just in a big blank canvas. Well, there's still a physical location that I'm going to be using that in. So we have to think of physical constraints. So, you know, is this going to be a three degrees of freedom experience? Is this going to be a six degrees of freedom experience? All of these questions are going to help us understand where we're going with our restraints. So we're going to think about, you know, is it important that I see the users around? Because if it is, well, obviously, either we're going to be looking at a multiplayer VR experience or we're going to be looking at an augmented reality experience. So we ask those questions that allow for us to, like, make an educated decision on, like, all right, this is a good starting point for us. But it also helps us break that thought process out into scenes. And so what we do is we meet as a group and we'll often put together what's called an advisory committee. And then we also put together a working The advisory committee is the stakeholder. That's the C-level employees. And sometimes it's the same group that is both advisory and working. But like if it's a school, you know, the advisory committee may be the budgeting team, your principal, the head of a department. So people along those lines, the funder, whoever may have funded it, that are going to drive the high-level expectations. Like we've got to make sure that this thing does X, Y, and Z. The working group is the group that we build as part of this process that are the experts on that topic. Because one of the things that's really important to remember is that when you're building these types of experiences, 
the XR team, probably not that expert. I mean, I immersed myself in the knowledge, but, you know, I didn't drive a scissor lift before this. I didn't, you know, go up on tower cranes before this. I had to learn all that content by working with working groups to make sure that it's successful. Once we have that working group and advisory committee laid out, then we start to break the content down into scenes. And those scenes are kind of like beats in our story. So, you know, I am at very initial phase. What am I doing right now? Okay, well, I'm learning about PPE. I'm going to be doing this and this and this. I got to put on this PPE or I'm learning about these hazards or I'm learning the basics of pain or I'm learning, you know, these are the like the basics, the introduction to the language I'm learning. Those are going to be broken out into steps in the experience. And inside of each of those scenes, we break it out and say, like, what is the user seeing? What is the user doing? What is the user interacting with? And what is, like, the overall, you know, experience supposed to provide that user? So, you know, if I'm on a job site, I'm learning about power tools. In this initial scene, I'm picking up a manual and I'm handing it to my instructor. They are going to now teach me about that tool at a high level. The next scene is, all right, now I've got my PPE. What is the PPE used for? Am I putting it on my head? Is it just being presented to me? Depending on what kind of experience we determined in the previous step. After that, we start to plan, all right, we've got our content. We've got our high-level items. How do we measure that it's even successful? Right? So we start to think about those key performance indicators. And I like to focus on engagement and retention. Um, there are other measures that we look at, but engagement is really easy for an instructor to look at because you can just either survey or just watch the kids in your class. Are they enjoying it? Are they paying attention to the content? Are they interacting with it? And then retention, well, if we're teaching them something, we should be able to have them recall that information, whether that's a quiz built into the VR experience or as part of a facilitator guide for a classroom quiz after that. One thing that I like to push is that the XR experience doesn't have to encompass the entire experience. It can be a resource built into an overarching course. So I'm very polytechnic in the way that I approach education in the sense that like there's both hands-on components, but there's still a theory and there's a classroom component because the teacher still plays a role. So if it's being applied into a classroom scenario or a training facility scenario, you can still play on what the user just did in XR by incorporating it into other activities. So whether that's quizzing or, or other physical activities happening, but you know, it, it can be built into something along those lines. So we'll often do that as a facilitator guide. So We'll plan out, do we need a facilitator guide as part of this experience? After that, we have to start thinking about the physical restrictions that we're going to have. Do we have a network connection in the space? What is the IT department going to think of doing something along these lines? Do you have access to hardware? What hardware do we want to focus? And often that will lead into an ideation session or, or an exploration session, which is generally easier with local clients, but we've actually done it with remote clients as well, where we try hardware. Because... It's still not uncommon that you'll talk to a client and they won't have tried, you know, they may have tried a VR headset, you know, three years ago. They tried a CV1, you know, but they haven't tried the Quest. Or they've tried the Quest, but they, you know, they can't deploy the Quest into their organization. So they're looking at the Vive hardware. So they want to go focus plus three. And, you know, maybe... They've never tried it. So what we'll often do is have people come down to our space, either our warehouse or our office, and we'll actually play all the headsets, which is incredibly important because it gets them an understanding of like, okay, what are the physical restrictions? And then the final piece after we've actually you know planned the project is we start looking at the space that you're going to deploy to 
in more detail. So I created what's called the safety deployment checklist. And I think about the physical safety, the environmental safety. So like, you know, so the physical would be like, are you going to try and do this VR on a stage? Don't do that. So, you know, <laughs> is it physically safe to do VR in that space? The environmental space is like, you know, more safety for the headset. Like, are you going to try and store these things to your life? And then the third piece is the medical piece. So often we will take a lot of consideration into accessibility. So if it's a 360 experience, we also have at least one iPad on site that can run the experience as well. We built a platform for delivering 360 content. It also happens to work on other hardware implementations, right? So we can do it on a PC or, or an iPad. If someone with epilepsy is going to use these experiences. We probably shouldn't put a headset on, right? Or you know, people that have trouble with their eyes, or there's all kinds of reasons why you can't put a, a headset on. So that allows for us to be able to accommodate everything. And then after that, it comes down to planning out an actual, the actual development process. But at that point, you know, once you get to the end of the form, you're at that point where you have these resources, you have an initial plan, you've broken it into themes, you've put the content in. And that's something that we do either with our clients or like you mentioned, it's on our website. You can fill it all out yourself, get your PDF at the end, take someone else, you know, send them our love. <laughs> But, you know, it's there to help people because I have found that, like, we've done enough projects at this point that there are patterns to what makes a successful XR project. And we tend to encounter the same things over and over again. The person that's been doing it for 30 years that doesn't see any reason to change the way that we learn. The person that, you know, is hesitant to technology or is afraid that it's going to make them irrelevant in some capacity. So there's ways to get around all of that. And the best way is to engage those people. So, you know, don't try and shy away from the guy that doesn't want to do it because he's been doing it for 30 years or the person that is afraid of becoming irrelevant to XR because they're not. And it's not going to change the way they're doing it. It's going to enhance it. But engaging them in that, those are the people that you should bring onto the working group because they are the ones that are going to ultimately bring the most valuable insights. Because if we're going to build technology, we want to build technology that matters. We don't want to build it for the sake of building. Let's give the link where people can find out more before we continue. Excellent. Yeah, you can get a hold of us at our website at fitspacedevelopment.com. And you can find our VR builder tool at vrsafety.net. You mentioned epilepsy. You wouldn't want to put a headset on somebody that has epilepsy or if somebody has a visual problem. How do we make XR available to everybody? Is that possible today? So there's definitely challenges to accessibility for everybody. That comes down to smart design. So I mean, unfortunately, there's always going to be a barrier where we have to try and overcome it. But incorporating designs, like, you know, if you can incorporate a gamepad into the design experience, then you can incorporate the Microsoft Accessibility Controller, which allows for a more robust input method. Obviously, that will have some challenges without reaching out and grabbing things. But when you're creating the interactive components to the game, I mean, if you don't shoehorn yourself into the experience where you have to be able to reach out and grab something. Like if you can line up a crosshair and press the A button for an accessibility mode, then someone that's you know stuck in a wheelchair that doesn't have full mobility on their hands can still look over and grab that thing. I do find that some of the more simple forms of XR, like 360 content, is more inherently accessible because we can focus just on gazing or by using a tool like an iPad. We have taken our more robust experiences so one game that we worked on was called Level Up. And Level Up was developed for an organization called Safe Workers of Tomorrow, which put youth in various jobs that they might have in real life. So they might work in a restaurant or they might work in a warehouse. And what we did is we also created a 
three degrees of freedom version of the game, which allowed for, you still got the three the 3D environment, but you could play it through the web browser or you could play it with a, an iPad, for example. And it did add dev cycles to the game. So obviously it's a balancing act if you're a software development team. But what it ultimately allowed us to do was incorporate everybody. Everybody could learn about those hazards and react to them. Now, obviously the accessibility version has compromise to make sure that it works for everyone, but it is definitely possible with accessible design. And there's different ways to consider accessibility. We've spent a significant amount of time out in our labs incorporating tools like 3D Rudder, which allows for you to be able to, it's an alternate locomotion tool. It allows you to move through the space by just tilting your feet on a platform. Another piece that I've been exploring is the cyber shoes. Although it isn't quite as accessible as 3D Rudder, but there are different ways and different tools that you can incorporate to allow for you to really explore the space and still be able to move around, even if you aren't able to get up and physically move. But obviously, like there are different things to consider. So accessibility for movement or accessibility for interactivity, accessibility for people that may have colorblindness or epilepsy are all going to be considerations that we make. And especially if you're in a school setting, they're a responsible decisions. So that is definitely part of the discussion that you need to have. I like to think we'll see more and more of that for the future. What's next for BitSpace development? What are you looking at as we, that you can tell me about as we look forward to 2022, 2023? So BitSpace is spending a significant amount of time on our R&D side, exploring more on the AI and the dynamic infrastructure and the digital twin aspect of training. So BitSpace is a member of the NVIDIA Inception program, and we do have currently a warehouse where we run our servers, NVIDIA's GPUs, for creating and training models that are being used in some of our prototype experiences right now. That will become more and more prevalent in our experiences as we move forward, but our big focus right now, outside of just creating robust XR experiences, is bringing more of an artificial intelligence approach to those experiences. And that is a brand new thing. Like that we, we were just added to the NVIDIA Inception program. So, so this is the first time that we're really publicly talking about <laughs> Wow, now I feel special. What will that AI do as I use one of your experiences in the future? So our focus right now is on incorporating our IoT data collection peripherals that we've been designing into physical locations to create a robust digital twin. And on the AI front, create a smart system for both managing real world environment variables that you would be interacting with, but also creating scenarios based on that data that you would have to react to. So for example, if I'm gonna create a digital twin of the warehouse that I'm working in right now, perhaps I am monitoring the electrical consumption, the heat, the airflow, and perhaps the AI would create a scenario where the room temperature is getting too hot. We didn't open the front door to cool down the space, and we're going to run into physical problems in the back for a training scenario. So it would be able to dynamically create those training scenarios that we would want to put a user into in the space. This is going to be amazing. What's been one of the best experiences you've had with designing cool things that solve problems within the last year? What's been one of the most fun? So some of the stuff I can speak abstractly about, but we've been working really hard on creating educational experiences that blend 
the use of the HoloLens with both medical applications, but also additional devices for inputs. So designing experiences that take the ability for a, an instructor to control an environment that the students are experiencing in a HoloLens in real time in a fluid and dynamic way has been one of the most interesting and exciting design problems that we've been trying to solve from just the, the beautiful environments that we're creating for one of our experiences in the mining industry. We have been lucky to work with our local mining association in some of the northern communities here in Manitoba to be able to send some photographers down into the mines up in the north to capture the space in 360 and then use the 360 VR reference material to allow my art team to be immersed in the actual environment to create the 3D environment. So instead of just giving them photos of the space and having them interpret it, we sent them there virtually so they could actually see what it's like in the mind to create a true proportion, to create the true level of detail on the space. So that way when we send youth into the mind for career exploration or new entrants into the mind for training, it's not just our interpretation of what it is. It's a true reconstruction of the space based off of a tour that we created using 360 photography. That was a really interesting and fun challenge to overcome. The flow of the application isn't too much different. But what I'm finding is with this new art flow, it really allows us to capture the space in an impressive amount of detail without ever having been there. What if somebody's brand new to XR? What resources do you suggest they get started with? So I usually send people, most of the people that come to me, they're in the education space and they say to me, I want to get learning about XR. I actually send them to the gaming side of things. So I send them over to reviews about our headsets, but also to YouTubers that are playing games. And the reason for that is that I want them to understand the limitations and the, the capabilities of the hardware from a gaming perspective, because all of that is available to us in education. We can create fun learning environments. We can create fun learning content. But I also send them to VR arcades to play. So if they don't have access to the hardware themselves, I send them to go and get access to the hardware. If they're local, I, I literally set it up for them. But I send them in to just start exploring. There are all kinds of books and, and podcasts and, and resources that they can explore. And that is an ever-changing list that I can never think of off the top of my head. But I often will tell people to play. And playing is going to give them the best and most realistic understanding of the technology and the limitations of the technology. It does seem like playing is the number one way to get into anything technical without too much stress or hassle. If people could only get one thing from you and from your work about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you really like them to take away from you? The number one thing to know, take away from me, is not even necessarily about the hardware or the technology I'm specifically focused on. It is that when you think about like how my company got started and, and where I came from, like I didn't come from a business focused family. I'm the first of all my, my core family to start a business and to go down this road is that anybody can do this kind of thing if they are curious and, and driven to get out there and that there is a true power in mentorship and opening yourself up to people that can help you along your journey. For me, what I try to inspire people with and for them to take away from me is that 
everything that I have accomplished so far has come from just trying to do cool stuff, but not changing course on what I want to do and what I believe in. And it definitely has its ups and downs. So you're not going to probably not going to jump into it and immediately just be like, make and bang. You're probably going to have a struggles and, and challenges to overcome, but to stick with it and that you're better off to try and fail and learn than to always wonder if like your idea was possible or if you know you had made the right decision. I just try and fail as fast as possible and move on to the next thing that I want to try and conquer. Dan, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. You and I have been listening to Dan Blair, founder and CEO of Bitspace Development in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Find out more about Bitspace Development's interactive educational technology at bitspacedevelopment.com. That's bitspacedevelopment.com. And get a look at their VR safety tutorials. You'll find those at vrsafety.net. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.